We are continuing our journey through Mark's gospel. Uh, Last week, our scripture reading ended with the disciples asking a question. Who is this? It's a question that keeps popping up in Mark's telling of the story. In just four short chapters, we've seen Jesus show his power over sin by forgiving uh, guilt and shame. We've seen him heal the sick, showing his power over illness. We've seen him bring wholeness on the seventh day, showing power over something as holy as the Sabbath. And we've seen him calm the sea, showing his power over the forces of chaos that threaten to tear the world apart. And the question keeps building and building, who is this? And the answer that Mark keeps wants to pull the veil back on is, this is a person in whom the power and authority of the kingdom are uniquely present. And those who root their identity in him, that power is able to bring about whole life transformation. And over and over again, we see Jesus show the power to renew people whose lives have been torn apart by evil. We saw that last week in Jesus stilling a a violent storm at sea, showing that he has power over the chaos that exists in the world. But what happens when that storm is inside of us. So I invite you with that to turn to chapter 5 of Mark's Gospel, verses 1 through 20. Buckle up, this is a weird story. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit from the tombs came to meet him. Pause just right there for a second. I mean, imagine, you know, put yourself in the position of the disciples, right? They have gone through this storm, and Jesus stills the storm, and they're terrified. And then they get to the other side of the place where the storm was, and they meet this guy who is possessed by demons. And that's a rough day in the office if you're a disciple of Jesus. When they got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs were feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down to the steep bank to the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. Imagine trying to explain that to your boss. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. 
the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has shown mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And now, Almighty God, we thank you that you are a God who casts light into darkness. And so we ask that in the hearing of your word that you would cast light into the darkened places of our lives so that we would not simply hear, but we would become your disciples. We'd be transformed into your likeness. We pray this in your name. Amen. There's evil in the world. And thank God also there is good. Last Saturday I woke up and I took Graham to his first baseball game of the summer season. The weather was perfect. It was a nice 74 degrees outside with a light breeze. You remember that moment? It lasted like a second. Trees in the outfield were fully in bloom. They were swaying gently in the wind. There were a bunch of dads out there dragging the fields, chalking the lines, kind of creating the conditions for joy to unfold out later in the day. That evening later, we went out bowling as a family. We spent plenty of time laughing and eating and enjoying each other, cheering each other on. I mean, it does not matter who won. It does not matter at all. We were out there having fun, being with each other, being for each other. We all went to bed. We all slept well. Meanwhile, 900 miles away, a young man filled with the demonic ideology of white supremacy was carrying out plans for mass murder. And it was fueled by internet conspiracies about the fiction of a coming genocide against white people and the cultural norms that allow those kind of lies to flourish Ten souls of inestimable dignity and worth were lost. And this came only a few days after a young black man walked into a Dallas nail salon owned and operated by Korean Americans with a 22 caliber rifle and opened fire, injuring three. And all because he suffered delusions about race that stemmed from a traffic accident that he was in a year earlier with a man of Chinese descent, not Korean. Each of these are not isolated incidences, but each of them are an affront to the image of God. But, you know, evil and and darkness, it doesn't just get in there in ways that make news headlines. It creeps in subtly as well. I had a text exchange with a friend in Southern California this week whose daughter was in the throes of a battle over body image. What she sees in the mirror is not reality, and she, they cannot get her to eat, and they fear that hospitalization may be next. I spent some time earlier this week with a young man who's experiencing homelessness. This has him socially, physically, spiritually isolated, and over dinner he told me about stories about stars falling from the sky and climbing mountains with fire-breathing dragons. He told me that what he wanted was a stable place to live, but he also said, but if you've got some drugs, I'll take those too. And as easy as it is to think about how dark it gets out there, I also know all the ways that I have lost my temper, 
The ways that I have spoken harshly, where the bottled up pain of old wounds comes spilling itself out in fearful and callous words. I know all the ways that I stumble to show love and all the ways that I have to ask for forgiveness to make right what I have made wrong. You see, evil doesn't just exist out there in society. It exists within my own soul. Dostoevsky said it best, God and the devil are fighting and the battlefield is the heart of man. And I, for one, feel that inner tug of war, that fight raging between my own mind and my body and my soul, between what Jesus and St. Paul called the flesh and the spirit. And for those who find Jesus compelling, the Western secular theories that try to account for evil, that want to chalk it all up to a lack of education or socioeconomic or sociopolitical realities or simply some sort of hangover from our evolutionary ascent, they all fall flat in accounting for the fullness of human experience. That's part of the story. But it's not all of the story. It's only a bit of the picture. For Jesus... There was a, an invisible but very real intelligence who was this profound force of anti-creation decimating all that is lovely, all that is good, all that is beautiful, all that is true in the world. And those who followed him throughout the Gospels, they often would see the, the veil torn back on this spiritual substructure to reality in which evil has a consciousness. And they were given this whole other lens by which to view the presence of evil and its pattern at work in the world. And through the presence of Jesus, we were also given new eyes to see God's power over evil. And what it looks like to be part of a community that is tasked with and called into the work of repairing what is broken, restoring all of creation, seeing shalom come back together. So yeah, this is a weird story. But maybe it's not as weird as you think. And it might actually shed some light on how we experience the presence of evil, how we see its pattern at work in the world, and ultimately God's power to restore lives that have been destroyed by evil, which means that ultimately this is a story of hope for us. So first, presence of evil, which means a diagram. Some of you are like, can we just skip, you know, to the part that's about me in this? Well, here in the global West, we experience the world through what the philosopher Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame. I may have talked about this once uh, before, but what he means by that is that if you were to think of reality as living inside of a box, and inside that box is everything observable that you can, you know, kind of, uh, all, all the sensory experience, everything that is imminent, everything you can touch, uh, taste, see, hear, smell, all that. We tend to operate in our Western world as though that is all of reality. There's nothing outside of the box. All of reality can be fit nicely and neatly in the box. Well, other cultures and other time periods, they would view that box as one layer inside of another layer. And they would see that box as kind of porous, uh, things outside of the box, uh, the transcendent spiritual world, think they can come through the little holes all around, or they would see that maybe the box is having a, a lid that was open to the heavens, able to have this influence from the spiritual reality that surrounds and undergirds every bit of the box. So obviously when you enter into the world of the Bible, you are entering into a way of seeing the world that is quite different from what pervades the kind of intellectual establishment in North America. The idea that evil has a consciousness, right? 
It sounds to a good many people, maybe even some of you, like pre-modern myth, like I'm talking about Thor's hammer or something like that. The kind of superstitious thing that ancient people believe, but, you know, we just don't believe those anymore. They're kind of relics of that world. Case in point, I was sitting in a New Testament exegesis class 20 years ago at Princeton Seminary, so you can imagine it's kind of an erudite place, uh, cerebral, intellectual orientation to things. And our professor was discussing one of the passages of uh, demonization in the New Testament. And he was kind of talking about it. It's like, well, things, we obviously don't believe this anymore. It's what pre-modern people use to describe things like mental illness. And Joseph, who was a Kenyan student in the class, uh, raised his hand and said, uh, Professor, I, I don't mean any disrespect. But it does seem like you are invalidating my experience and that of my brothers in the global church. Not only do I believe in demons, I have cast them out. And our professor, we were all like, what are you going to say about that? And he just stood there. So I've learned over time, you know, that just because something lies beyond my experience, it doesn't mean it isn't true. I had a similar experience uh, at this time at a, at my, in my doctoral work. A bunch of pastors in this 15-person seminar, about a third of them were from a global context. And we were talking about, you know, how do people come to faith in a post-Christian secular world? And, you know, we're talking about, you know, things like affliction, beauty, you know, crisis. Those tend to be the things that, that grab people. And one of us, you know, turned and said to Arbin, who was a, born in Nepal, educated uh, both his, his undergrad and seminary in the United States, and then moved back to Kathmandu to plant a Presbyterian church. We're like, well, how do, what, what does it look like in a country that's 85%, you know, Buddhist? And he just looked at us and said, it's the healings. Thousands of people come to faith in Kathmandu because they've been healed in the name of Jesus. So figure that out, you guys. <laughs> I've learned over time that just because something doesn't fit my experience doesn't mean it's not true. And in talking with Christians in a global context, you have to be careful of having what Mark Sayers calls a Western supremacist attitude, this kind of condescending, reductive, colonialistic posture, Right? The witness of scriptures, at least, if you can't get behind any of that, Jesus believed in the presence of demons. But at the same time, when Jesus heals people, it's not like he sees demons in every sickness. Sometimes those ailments are purely physical, and so Jesus heals the person without invoking a spiritual presence. There is a lot of nuance in the world of the Bible, of the, this complex interweaving of the spiritual and the psychological but sometimes the emotional, the physical, the, the social, the mental and the spiritual dungeons that people are locked in, they've got more than one chain on them, more than one locked to that chain. And so the, the witness of scripture is that spiritual darkness isn't everywhere, but it's not nowhere either. I was reading through some of Dr. King's sermons this week, and some of the wisest saints throughout history all have believed in the presence of evil through spiritual oppression. And I think for those of us in the West who tend to kind of dismiss that stuff out of hand, I think of that haunting scene at the end of The Usual Suspects. If you've seen that movie, it's when Verbal is talking about Kaiser Sose, this kind of ghost that, that over, you know, over influences all the events in the story, this, this person. And he says, nobody believed he was real. That was his power. 
The greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And then you realize that verbal is Kaiser so say. And so if this is true, and I recognize that I've lost some of you on this point about spiritual powers operating beneath the surface of things, things influencing our world, I know that you are smart, you're educated people, but if this is true, then how does it work? What is the pattern of evil in the world? Does it always look like this man who is naked, breaking out of chains, being dragged into a graveyard? I mean, not many of us can relate to that. But to understand the story, I think you have to see how it fits within the bigger story the scripture is telling. And the Bible starts, you know, with the story of creation in which God has made this beautiful, whole, good, and just world. And in this creation, God is weaving things together, humans to God's very self as image bearers. He binds humans to each other, uh, female and male as this pair whose harmony together bears the fullness of the image of God, not one without the other. And, and he, he binds these humans to the rest of creation as caretakers of, of creation, as cultivators of creation. It's this place where this, uh, this, this wholeness and, and justice and flourishing all rush out. It is what the Bible describes as shalom. And it's a, it's a word I use a lot, but it's a word I think it's the best one around there that describes the wholeness and flourishing of what God intends, this integrated world where things are as they are meant to be. And against this background of, of this world that is created and drawn together and all these threads are woven together in an act of creation, we have very early in the story an adversary who is involved in an act of anti-creation. The blurring of distinctions, the, the tearing away of bonds, the rupturing of shalom, the unraveling of it that begins with the lie, you shall be like God. And everything in creation starts to get frayed Sin begins to vandalize shalom. Whole persons become alienated from themselves, relationships to each other, to the earth, to the vocation of cultivating creation. It all begins to disintegrate. A friend of mine used this great analogy. If you think about those, those great tapestries that hang in castles in, in Europe that you know, kind of cover the walls. We get the slide of the tapestry up here. Um, these intricate pieces of work that, that tell this story, and they all have these, these little bits of scenes of, of, that are all kind of part of the composite sketch of telling the whole thing. Painstakingly, they're woven into this kind of elaborate whole, and creation is like that. It's this big picture in which the threads of justice and mercy and grace and joy and delight and goodness, they're all woven together, and your life is like a scene within this grand art piece, your vocation, your giftedness, your family, your friends, your relationships, your, your love, your mind, your body, your neighborhood, all these things are kind of woven together into a harmony. And evil seeks to tear at the fabric of shalom, twisting, weakening, bit by bit, tearing away the thousand little threads that give the whole thing integrity. And so this man who Jesus encounters here, he is this Extreme picture of what this unraveling of shalom looks like when it gets into a person. And the picture that Mark gives us is a, it's, it's total. This guy is alienated on every single layer of his life. Socially, he is alone. He is both feared and he is afraid. 
physically, he is cutting himself on rocks. Mentally, he is dissociative. Economically, he is living in a place of death. And spiritually, he is tormented day and night. The tapestry of his life has become completely unraveled, this mass of frayed and disparate threads. And so the question is, well, how did this happen? Well, we don't know this guy's story. Jesus just finds him this way. But we have a few hints that this didn't happen all at once. There's not like there was a Faustian bargain here where the devil showed up, you know, dressed like uh, Will Ferrell in that SNL sketch. And he says, I'll just trade you your soul for one hit rock song or something like that. What happened took place gradually. It took place over time. Mark tells us in verse 3 that this man lived in the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with chains. Which means that he had these chains on him at one point, and at one point they could bind him with them, just not anymore. Something else has enslaved him instead. And I want to suggest that this is how evil tends to work in our lives. This tends to be the pattern gradually when we open up the door to something and give that thing more power than it was ever meant to have. There was this 4th century monk named Evagrius of Ponticus who went out into the desert to fight the devil, as one does. And before long, word got out that there was this monk who was out there in the middle of nowhere combating demons. And not only was he combating them, but he was winning. (laughs) And so late in his life, he was pressed to kind of pass on what it was that he learned. And he wrote this book, bear in mind, 3rd century, he wrote this book with this title, Talking Back. A monastic handbook to combating demons. Isn't that just like the coolest title ever? (laughs) And you might expect to find in that, you know, all kinds of incantations and all kinds of weird stuff, formulas, you know, weird, strange, long prayers, a list of things that you have to do to kind of prepare yourself, special underwear you need to wear or something like that. But instead, what you find is actually a sophisticated work of psychology. The central point, The central argument that this third century monk is making is that temptation, spiritual oppression, is primarily a fight against what he called logismoi. It's a Greek word that is translated as thoughts or thought patterns or internal narratives or your internal belief structures. Basically, the main spiritual fight is against the stories that we tell ourselves the mental maps that we use to navigate the world. And for Evagrius, the the spiritual torment is the the process of being overrun by these logismoi, overrun by these thoughts that come from without and make their way inside of you. And like like a poison tree, it plants a seed and that grows up slowly. So you're harmed by someone. And at first, you know, you, you nurse a grudge. You don't intend to hate, but it's, it's a little bit fun to just think about how you've been wronged and you can't stop thinking about it and about the person that, that hurts you and before too long that hurt turns into hate. And why should that person be happy when they have made me so miserable? And before long you find yourself in a graveyard of bitterness. I remember I met a pastor once who found himself in a hotel with a call girl on Christmas Eve. Right after he finished preaching four packed Christmas Eve services talking about the miracle of the incarnation of God being with us. How did he get there? Well, it started out 
by readily accessible porn that he kept hidden away for years and slowly led to this graveyard of sexual addiction. Or it looks like reading some hate-filled screed online, maybe about race, maybe about politics. Take your pick, there's plenty of them out there. And it taps into this deep fear, but it also gives your insecurity a target. So you keep on reading, and you keep on watching YouTube videos, and you, you find news media, and you find chat rooms that support and amplify the lie. And before too long, you're not just telling the lie, you're living the lie. You've let that narrative about reality get into your body and all the thoughts start to get muddled around. The tapestry starts to unravel and where mental illness is present, the spiritual battle amplifies uh, the unweaving. And it's not just psychological, but it's social. It's not just mental, but it's spiritual. And all of it comes unraveled in a graveyard. Nobody intends to end up here. But almost anything can master you. John Mark Comer put it like this. He says, we are prey to deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in sinful society. The lies that you believe end up becoming the lies that you live. And almost anything can put you in chains. Lies about beauty, about money, about security, about your goals, about your, your ambitions, about your, your career, about your fears. These things that we give more power to that just are not made to bear the weight of the power that we give them, they can become an avenue of spiritual oppression. Evil can use just about anything to unravel you. And if it doesn't happen directly, in any of these active kind of ways, it comes indirectly by the harm that's done to us, by abuse, by trauma, by deep sorrow. So yeah, maybe you're not relating to this guy out there naked, bleeding, hanging out in a graveyard. But you've all experienced, we have all experienced the, the fraying of the threads relationally, emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually. And so I guess the real question is, where has that unraveling started to happen in you? In your family, in your neighborhood, in the place where you bear influence? Where do you make yourself vulnerable to deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are amplified and normalized in the culture? Whether that's the culture out there, the culture in here, real Evil exists in the world and it has real power. But Jesus has power over evil. So what does he do? Well, he shows grace and he opens wide the doors of the kingdom to someone who is in every measurable way an outsider. I love how Mark takes a lot of pains to show just how uh, off the beaten path Jesus is here. He is Setting, letting us know, like, he is in Gentile territory. There is the Greek name of the cities, the Decapolis. There is the unclean spirit with a Roman name. There is the unclean man who's, who's naked, who's covered in cuts. There is the unclean place, the tombs. There are the unclean animals, the pigs. Jesus is in a place where absolutely no Jewish rabbi has any business being. I mean, he is so far outside of the bounds of acceptable and appropriate behavior that there aren't even any religious people around to judge him. And this is the real head trip of the story. At the very end of it, he gets back in the boat and he goes back to where he came from, as if to say that the entire reason he came was just to set this guy free. 
Jesus goes to the edges, to the margins. That's how deep his mercy runs. But it's not just mercy. He's come to show his power, to show that there is no part of creation that the kingdom cannot break into. And so in a sense, Mark is kind of setting up this scene for a battle. There's Jesus on one side and Legion on the other. And, and uh, the man's name is Legion. It's this uh, name for a Roman military unit of 6,000 soldiers. So Jesus is on the one side, Legion on the other. But it turns out there is not even a fight. Legion already knows the battle is over. In fact, he pleads with Jesus not to send him away. Like, you know, this, let me stay in this territory. I'm going to have to explain it to my supervisor or something like that. And Jesus does not crack his knuckles. He doesn't roll up his sleeves. He, he doesn't offer these long prayers, these religious sounding words. He doesn't do a big, long pep talk with the disciples. He simply speaks and it's done. And the transformation is total. He's restored to himself. He's restored to his home. He's restored to his community. He's restored to his vocation. Biblical scholar Justo Gonzalez put it like this. The demons Jesus conquers not, are not only those of illness and death, but also those of isolation and exclusion. All of the threads of shalom that have been torn apart are woven back together in his life. Jesus is intent on weaving back together what has become totally disintegrated in you. Emotionally, mentally, physically, economically, relationally. There is no area of brokenness that the grace of his kingdom is not dying to break into. He longs to reintegrate everything that has been torn apart. And he does it out of grace for you. But he doesn't just do it for you. He does it so that you can partner in bringing that shalom into the world. Curious thing is, in Mark's gospel, every time Jesus does a healing, every time he, he comes to somebody who's afflicted and, and he either heals them physically or he heals them spiritually or casts out a demon or something like that, he's always telling the people afterwards, don't say anything about it. Don't tell anybody about this. But this is the first time Jesus tells the guy, he, he comes to Jesus and he says, I, look, I want to follow you. I'll, you've, what you've done for me, I owe you everything. Let me come follow you. And Jesus says to him, no. He says, go and tell the story of what God has done for you. It's an interesting, you know, fact that the very first time Jesus commissions someone in the gospel of Mark, it's this guy. I mean, I don't know what kind of criteria you are looking for. If you were to pick your first missionary or your first, like, you know, evangelist out in the world, I don't know that formerly naked, demented guy would, like, be at the top of the list, right? But he's at the top of Jesus' list. And maybe he's there because he's trying to show how complete Jesus' power over evil is that the entire trajectory of this guy's life has been reversed. The one who was a source of fear and terror in his own community is now a source of shalom and restoration in that community. And that's what Jesus wants to do with us. So often we want to just stay with Jesus, hanging out with him, enjoying his goodness, sitting at his feet like good disciples. And Jesus says, no, disciples are also made in the sending. 
We have this mission statement here at All Souls, practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. We participate in that renewal when we go out of this place, when we work toward restoration in those places where shalom is torn apart in our world. And he calls us to go, particularly into the graveyards, into those places where vulnerability, where isolation is at its most powerful. And maybe, like this man, those graveyards are among your own people, your, your neighbor across the street, your, your marriage or, 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 or a marriage in your neighborhood where somebody has you know, just kind of blown up in infidelity or something like that. Maybe it's like the disciples getting back in the boat and going out to a new place, to those who are out on the margins in a place where you have no business being, except to see and experience the grace of the kingdom breaking into that place. Either way, those who have been called, who have been restored by Jesus, have been sent out to be agents of shalom in the world. One last thing as we come to the table. You notice the story starts, everyone's afraid of this guy. And Jesus welcomes him. The story ends with this guy being welcomed into community. And everyone's afraid of Jesus. The outsider's brought in, the insider is brought out. And as we come to the table, we remember that Jesus is the one who at the end of the Gospels is cut, is disfigured, who takes on the legion of sin of the world that we might experience the shalom of God. In this meal, we remember that he was pulled apart so that we can be woven back together together.